Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grow Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grow Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, grace and peace to you. Hey, have you heard that we have this ping pong ministry at the church? Isn't that cool? Let me tell you, this got started. There's some hotshot dude, young guy in the church, who really likes to play ping pong. He's got his own paddle. He's one of those guys. And he decided that he wanted to school some people here. By the way, if you're up for a challenge, you should show up on Thursday nights. And he invited friends, people from the church, people from outside the church, people from outside the faith. And they're gathering here on Thursdays, and they're in fellowship, and they're in discussion and relationship with each other. God can absolutely do something with that. And listen, when we talk about every member ministry, when we talk about we're a priesthood of believers, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. So I love that. You should encourage those who are a part of it. You should pray for them. And perhaps God will put something on your heart as well, maybe even today as we look at his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this morning. And Lord, we do uh, just sit and wonder as we consider the ways in which you're working in our world. I mean, you're sending missionaries to the Far East you're, you're calling people to work in, in urban centers. And Lord, you're also calling people, raising them up to have a ping pong ministry. How amazing are you? And God, in light of your work around the world, um, we say, yes, we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of advancing your kingdom and advancing the gospel, Lord. Use us, please, to that end. And I pray that the message today would inspire us all and build us up to be more devoted to Jesus than we've ever been before. And so, Lord, now, would you open the eyes of our hearts? We want to see you. We want to know you. We pray that all this would happen even now in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I heard there was a heavyweight prize fight last night, and that got me thinking back to some of the glory years of boxing, at least in my book, and those are the days in the late 80s when Mike Tyson was on the scene. I know you remember Mike Tyson. He's kind of unforgettable. And Mike Tyson, if you weren't around those, those times, if you're young, young and you weren't around during that time period, Mike Tyson was a phenomenon, was he not? I mean, he dressed differently. He came into the ring differently with a different demeanor. Uh, the way that he fought was just different than those who'd preceded him. He was really something else, and he started out of the gate 34-0, 34-0, bunch of knockouts in there, really impressive, and people began to wonder, I mean, can anyone beat Mike Tyson? Will this guy ever lose a boxing match? Well, there arose a contender. There arose a contender, and his name was Michael Spinks. So Michael Spinks was pretty decorated. He was an Olympic gold medalist. He himself at this point, was 31-0. and 0. And so people said, hey, Spinks might be able to do something here. Spinks might have a chance to actually beat Tyson, to give him a fight. And so a big purse was on hand. I mean, $70 million. It was the biggest purse to date at that point. And the day the fight came, they climbed in the ring, and 91 seconds over, 
Mike Tyson knocked out Michael Spinks. It was all over. All those people paid all that money for pay-per-view. Some of you are still upset about that. (laughs) You know, I think about this, and I think about prize fighting, and I think that there's a lesson in here for us, and the lesson is this, that somehow we have to knock out the contenders of worship. We're talking about worship outside the box. Well, there are contenders. And so today, I am here to help make all of you into the Mike Tysons of worship. Without all the crazy, of course. But the Mike Tysons of worship. We're going to turn you into people who knock out the contenders for worship. I would show you what that looks like, but then I remembered I'm a pastor and I can't knock anyone out. So we're going to talk about from a spiritual sense, and we're going to start by looking historically at the church. You know, if, if you look throughout the Scriptures, one of the themes that you will pick up on is that idolatry has been rampant from day one. In fact, there are at least 35 false deities that are referenced in the Scripture. How about that? That's a major theme. At least 35 false deities are referenced in the Scriptures. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that there are a few that we can mention even today and talk about call these idols, false deities, gods with a little g, the people of worship. Let's start with the Canaanites. If you go back to the Old Testament times, one of the people who populated the earth were the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites had many gods, but two prominent ones. The two most prominent gods mentioned in the Old Testament are Baal and the Asherah, God Asherah, goddess. Now, you may have come across these if you're reading through, for instance, the one-year Bible. Which, by the way, if you're doing something like that, keep on going. If you've gotten behind, you could pick it back up. But it's a great habit to be in, to be reading the Scriptures daily. And if you're doing something like that, you'll probably come across the name Baal and the name Asherah. Let me talk about Baal for a little bit. Baal was the predominant deity of Old Testament times, a Canaanite god. The predominant deity of the ancient Near East. And Baal was this this figure with a human body and the head of a bull. And he had a lightning bolt in his hand. And the message was this, destruction. In other words, any god with a small g that would come on against Baal would be defeated. His deal was conquest. That's what you would say about Baal. Now, Asherah, on the other hand, this was a goddess of fertility. So if you wanted to bear children, if you wanted your livestock to reproduce, to multiply. If you wanted to have abundant crops, if you wanted anything to be fertile, if you wanted to be blessed in a sense, then you would bow down at an Asherah pole or an Asherah tree and worship that tree in hopes that fertility would somehow be blessed to you and your animals and your crops. These were the, the gods of the Old Testament. Baal and Asherah. And you can essentially sum them up with two words. One word is power. I mean, that's what Baal represented. Power. And what do people want? People in the Old Testament times wanted a taste of power in their life. They wanted Baal on their side. And what else did they want? Well, they wanted prosperity. They wanted their crops to reproduce. They wanted to have children so they could go to work for them. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to be prosperous. These are the gods of the Old Testament. Let's take a look, on the other hand, at the gods 
of the New Testament. You see, people thought Baal and Asherah, that they were passe by this point. People had become much more sophisticated and moved on, and they moved on to the Greek gods. I think that's on this side. They moved on to the Greek gods. No longer the Canaanites were in charge of the gods. No, the Greeks had brought their gods. And the Greeks were polytheists. They had a plethora of gods. Not just one or two or three. They had many, 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 many gods. Chief among those gods was Zeus. Zeus was the leader of the gods. And then there's a goddess named Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was a sensual goddess. Very sexual, in fact. They had temples built. And then these temples, they would do with the prostitutes, thousands of them who would come to these, these temples, they would do unspeakable, unthinkable things. You think today is bad. People have always been wicked. People have always sought out sin. And it was no different in New Testament times. Aphrodite, Zeus, the Greek gods. These were the ways in which people were turning to idolatry in those times. And what were they seeking, essentially? They were seeking possessions. They wanted stuff. What were they seeking? They were seeking, oh, not, yeah, there it is, pleasure. They were seeking pleasure. Possessions and pleasure. These were the things that the people in the New Testament were after, and this is why they would turn to these false deities, these idols. It's interesting, isn't it? That's the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. Those are the kinds of gods that we see referenced in the Scriptures. But it doesn't end there, as you can imagine. I mean, these things can be contextualized today. Though we do not personify our gods, we don't give them names like Zeus or Aphrodite, or Asherah, or Baal, though we don't do that, we certainly can see that idolatry can be uh, contextualized in our modern culture. The first way we can see this is really in biblical language. The Bible talks about the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. You ever heard that before? Now, lust of the eyes essentially is desire. It's desire. It's a, it's a quest to want, see something and want it. In fact, the, the Old Testament and the, and the Ten Commandments sums this up in the Tenth Commandment, which says, Thou shall not covet. It's coveting. Yes, the lust of the eyes is this idea that I see something and I want it, I covet it, I've got to have it. It's about desire. On the other hand, the Bible also talks about another kind of lust. There's not just the lust of the eyes, but also the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Now, the lust of the flesh, that could be summed up with one word, and that word would be delight. Delight. It's seeking out and wanting physical things, possessions, experiences, life. This is a physical way of approaching idolatry and so in our day once again we don't personify gods but i think we could say for sure that there are idols there are things that are false deities the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh can personify these things for us they're very real for us now aren't you glad that idolatry stays in the box or does it Idolatry doesn't stay in the box. It doesn't live in a box. 
Idolatry lives in you and in me. And if we're very, very honest with ourselves, we'll find this, that you and I are prone to want to put something other than God on the throne of our hearts. We want to put possessions. We want to put pleasure. We want to put power. We want to put all these things on the throne of our heart rather than God. There is a fight that's in us. Does that resonate with you? Do you see that in your own life? Yeah, even if you're someone who comes to church. Yeah, even if you're someone who believes in God. There is this constant struggle to keep idolatry in the box. Well, listen, you and me are not the first people to struggle with this. In fact, the early Christians were struggling with this. The letter that David just read to you, 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was written to a group of people who were struggling with idolatry. And Paul addresses them, and it's also an address for us. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 10 with me? We're going to read verses 1-7. through And as David referenced, there's this history lesson that we get here at the very beginning, starting in verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. So again, Paul's starting with this history lesson. He's referencing the, the, the history of the Israelites. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, we should learn from the example of the Israelites' idolatry in the wilderness. That we shouldn't just put this as something that's in a history book and forget about it. That we should actually learn from those who've come before us. You know, just in the past year, I have learned that my great-grandfather and great-grandmother immigrated to Pittsburgh from the Austria-Hungary Empire. I mean, just incredible. We didn't know anything about this. My dad didn't know this. We didn't know that we had these ancestors who just 109 years ago immigrated to our nation. In the context of history, 100 years is nothing. So what Paul is saying is saying, please pay attention to history. Don't be numb or dull to what God has done and those who have come before you. We should learn from the example of the Israelites' idolatry in the wilderness, and that's what we're going to do. Let's take a look at it once again. He says, our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Let's break this down. He's talking about the cloud, this imagery, and the sea. Well, what are these things? Well, the cloud was what overshadowed Israel throughout their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. This is found in the book of Exodus. And this cloud was something that during the day protected and sheltered the Israelites from the brutal sun. And then by night, this cloud burned as a pillar of fire to light their way. It was with them day and night as they ventured from Egypt to the Promised Land during the exodus and what was this a reminder to the people of israel that god's presence was with them that god himself was on their front and on their rear he was in their midst his presence was with them and here's what paul i believe is saying to the corinthian believers he's saying and just as if they just as they had the presence of god with them you corinthian believers 
have the presence of God with you in the form of the Holy Spirit that lives in the hearts of everyone who believes in Jesus. You have the presence of God with you. In fact, it's a message for our audience today. You have the presence of God in you through the living Jesus, the Holy Spirit that's in everyone who believes. It's powerful. He only says that. He says, look, you had the cloud with you. You had the presence of God with you. You also have passed through the sea. These Israelites, they passed through the sea. What's this reference? Of course, one of the most famous instances in all of human history when the Israelites miraculously passed through the Red Sea. Being chased by the Egyptians, Moses, with the power of God, the waters are parted. The Israelites walk in on dry land across the Red Sea. And as the Egyptians try to follow, the waters swallow them up once again. What's the imagery? The imagery is that the Israelites pass through the waters. They essentially, as the Scriptures say, were baptized into Moses. This is a Mosaic baptism. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea. They had faith in God because of what they had experienced in the Red Sea. And Paul, again, turns it to the Corinthians. He says, listen, you have a baptism too. You have passed through the waters of baptism. You've been regenerated by Jesus Christ. In this symbolic water, these baptisms have made you a new person. It's the Israelites' history. It's who the Corinthians were. And it's who we are as well. The history lesson continues. Paul, jumping down to verses 3 and 4, says, These Israelites, they all drank, I'm sorry, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So what is this spiritual food? Sounds very mysterious, this spiritual food. Well, again, if you go back to the Israelites' history, you'll remember that they were miraculously provided with food. Manna from heaven. Quail from heaven. God provided for them on a regular basis that they would be nourished even though they were wandering in the wilderness. What a great display of God's power and His might and His grace and His love. Well, not only that, they were provided with water. And this water comes from a rock. You know, the the rabbinical tradition taught that the same rock accompanied the Israelites throughout the Exodus. Same rock was with them. And they got water from this rock. And you might say, well, well, who's the rock? Is this Dwayne Johnson? That's what my girls thought. Not that rock. I mean, he's popular and he's cool, but this is way more powerful. The rock, of course, as expressed in the Scripture, is Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus was with the Israelites. And someone raises their hand and says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus born in New Testament times? Didn't this all happen before Jesus was born? How could Jesus have been with the Israelites? Listen, Jesus Christ has always existed. He is the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Jesus Christ is a member of the Trinity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He cannot be separated. Jesus just wasn't in some room waiting to be born at Christmas. Jesus has always existed. And Jesus was with the Israelites during the Exodus. Isn't that incredible? Spiritual food provided. Spiritual water provided. 
And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you too have spiritual food. You know what the spiritual food is? It's at the Lord's table. It's communion. It's this bread and this cup that represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that meal, though very small when we take it here, fills us like nothing else could ever fill us. It is spiritual food. Amen? And this is what the Israelites had. So this history lesson, you see that these Israelites, I mean, think about it. They had God's presence. They were, they were baptized in a sense. They were provided for in miraculous ways. There is no way that they could mess this up, could they? <laughs> Except they did. Of course they messed it up. And that's what we read here in verse 5, picking up again. Nevertheless, in spite of all this they saw, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Let me clarify something here for you. When, when Paul says most of them, he's being very, very generous because the truth of the matter is, if you look in the Old Testament, we have evidence to believe that only two people, two people who were in that first generation of Israelites who left Egypt, only two of them made it to the Promised Land. Joshua and Caleb. That's it. The rest of them perished. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And why did this happen to them? Why didn't they make it to the promised land? Well, here we see in verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And the passage goes on to describe what that revelry looked like. You see, the Israelites became idolaters. They became idolaters. They gave themselves over, their hearts and their minds, to things that were not of God. And as we discussed earlier, idolatry is not just something that lives in a box. Idolatry is not just something we read about in the Scriptures. Idolatry is something that is a threat to worship in you and in me and in the church today. And Paul addresses it here at the Corinthians, and, and we are addressing it today together as we read the Word as well. With this, let me give you a, a definition of worship. Now, this is a definition. There could be better definitions out there, but here's one for you to consider. Worship is the thing we give our life to in the hope that it will return more life. Say it again. Worship is the thing that we give our life to, our time, our money, our hearts, in the hope that it will return more life to us. Listen, everyone is worshiping something. Doesn't matter who you are. Surely some people are worshiping God. I pray that we are worshiping God. But we also worship at times the wrong things. There might be someone here who says, well, I'm not religious. I'm not a Christian. I don't worship anything. Wrong. I would argue that everyone, no matter who you are, you are worshiping something. You are putting your hope in something. You are pinning hope to something. You're hoping that something will return more life to you, and so you give your time to it. You give your treasure to it in hopes that you will get something more back. Everyone is worshiping something. The Corinthians did this. The Corinthians were pinning their hope to something. 
The Corinthians ascribed ultimate value to something. You know what it was? They were the polytheists. The Corinthians were those who were still clinging and struggling to not cling to the Greek gods. That's why Paul's addressing this. They were going into the, the temples where the prostitutes were. They, were. they were making sacrifices there to Aphrodite in hopes of getting pleasure. They were having idolatrous feast, idolatrous feast. And so Paul's addressing them. Well, how about you? What is it for you? What are you pinning your hope to? I'll give you a rule of thumb. You know how you can know what you're pinning your hope to? It's whatever you sacrifice for. What do you sacrifice for? Anything that you and I sacrifice for is a contender to a worship lifestyle for you and me. Anything that you're willing to sacrifice for, give your time, give your money, it's a contender for worship in your life. So what do we do about this? How do we address this? I'm going to take you to the preceding verses in chapter 9. It's interesting, right before Paul gives this little history lesson about the Israelites and warns against idolatry, he has another passage that I want to point out to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 27, just the page before we're reading. And I want to read these three verses to you. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who completes in the, competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Let me read this again with emphasis. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air like Michael Spinks. No, instead I strike a blow to my body like Mike Tyson and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You see the answer. For you and I, in terms of, of, of defending and beating down the idols, the threats, the contenders to worship in our life, is for you and I to fight against them. We have to go into a fight. We have to stand up and put up our hands and say, we're not going to stand for this. And how do we do this? We, we go into strict training. We, we do not run aimlessly. No, we strike blows to our body. Now, Paul is speaking figuratively. You know how we fight our battles? We fight our battles through prayer. We fight our battles through praise and thanksgiving. You know how we beat the contenders for worship in our life? Through fasting. Through abstaining. You have to be willing to enter into a fight. And it starts with an awareness. There is a fight for who sits on the throne or what sits on the throne in your life and my life. And the proper king, the one who sits on there, is the king of kings we just sang about. It's Jesus Christ. God belongs on the throne of your heart. And you and I have to fight in order to keep his place on the throne. Now, I'm going to give you a bottom line. 
And this came to my memory as I was preparing for this. If you flip a few pages over to the book of 1 John. John, after writing about love and about the power of God in the church and about the primacy of Jesus Christ, sums up his letter, has a final statement for his audience. And here's what he says. It's 1 John 5.21. The final statement, the mic drop moment that John suggests is this. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Boom, mic drop, walk away. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I suspect that John knew his audience was not comprised mainly of children. But he specifically referred to them and to us as children. Well, why children? Perhaps because he knows that we're prone to wander. Perhaps he knows he said that because he knows that we're, we're broken. And we forget quickly. And so he says, listen, little children, those of you who are, who are weak and prone to wander, keep yourselves from idols. Fight. Knock out the contenders in your life. Take up courage. Be bold and fight the fight. And so here's that bottom line. The bottom line is this. Don't let anything come between you and God. Don't let anything not money, not career, not possessions, not pleasure. Don't let anything come between you and God. And that takes a fight. If we're going to be the people of God, shining like a, a city on a hill, out being a part of God's redemptive work here, there, and everywhere, then we have to be people who are devoted to the Lord. Don't let anything come between you and and God. I want to give you a practical way to respond to this message today. And it comes from the Old Testament. You know, one of the things I love about the Word of God is that we have one message here. And that the truth runs across the pages from Old Testament through New Testament. And we see here in the book of Ezekiel, or as I like to call him, Zeke, some wisdom for people who are struggling with idols turning to false deities, clinging to things that really have no life or hope in them. We see Ezekiel address the people of God, the Israelites, through the voice of God to them, because these Israelites were prone over and over again to turn to the Asherah poles, to turn to, to, the, to Baal. And so this is what the address says, Ezekiel chapter 14. I'm just going to read a few verses here for you. Then some of the leaders of Israel visited me. And while they were sitting with me, Ezekiel says, this message came to me from the Lord. I believe it's a message for us too. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. Isn't that interesting? Not a physical arrangement. They had set up idols. Where? In their hearts. They put something that doesn't belong on the throne. On the throne. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their request? Tell them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and fallen into sin. And then they will go to a prophet ask for, asking for a message. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture the minds and hearts of all my people. 
who have turned from me to worship their detestable idols. Therefore, tell the people of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, repent and turn away from your idols and stop all your detestable sins. You know what your response opportunity is today? It's to repent. It's to turn away from the things that have no hope, that have no life in them, and to turn back to God. In fact, I'm going to lead you in a time of prayer right now. And as we go in this time of prayer, here is the sentence I want to put before you to consider. It has a blank in it. And the sentence is this, I have put blank between me and you, God. I have put blank between us. Well, what is that blank for you? Is it career? Is it the pursuit of money? Is it power? Have you put in an unhealthy way your family even before God? Is it, is it, is it the pursuit of pleasure? What is it that you have put before God? There's an opportunity today for us to come before the Lord and for us to repent and to say, God, I'm sorry that I have put this between me and you. There's an old song that we've sang in the church for several years called The Heart of Worship. There's a line in that song. We just sang it in the first service here this morning that says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. Speaking of worship coming back to the heart of worship it's all about you it's all about you jesus i'm sorry lord for the thing i've made it if you feel sorry for the thing that worship has become in your life if you have found yourself clinging to things that have no hope that have no real life in them you're not alone and there's an opportunity for us to turn to the lord and repent and say god i'm sorry that i have put this between you and me Will you join me in prayer? Let's bow our heads. I want to give you a chance to talk to God. God, thank you so much for this time together. And Lord, as we consider the history of the Israelites, as we consider the people of Corinth, and Lord, as we examine our own lives, um, I sense that me and my friends who are gathered here today are cut to the heart. Lord, we are sorry for the thing that we have often made worship. We are sorry for the things that we've put between us and you. So hear us now, Father, as we come before you. In your heart, and in your mind, would you say to God, God, I'm sorry that I have put blank between you and me. God, I'm sorry I've put anything between us. I've put my reputation between you and me, Father. Lord, I've put material possessions between you and me. Lord, my pride rests between you and me. What is it? God, thank you so much that you are so gracious that when we turn away from our sin and we turn back to you and we repent, that you are quick to welcome us with your open arms. Father, I pray that those gathered in this room today who are turning their hearts back to you, that they would feel your embrace, that they would know 
in their hearts and their minds that there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to live a life where you are in the proper place, you are on the throne. Help us, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to fight the battle against the idols that creep into our lives. God, we want to live for you because we love you. We're so grateful for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be devoted to him. Hear us as a church, Lord. See us as a people. We love you. We give praise to your name. And we acknowledge that you are the true king and that your proper place is on the throne, not only in heaven, but in our hearts. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.